Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I could talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid, just walk with your Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. This is Monica, and I'm your host. Tonight is June 20th, 2012. Wow, about half the year is almost gone here. It's been a busy year uh, Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. I have a really, really interesting guest on tonight, and his name is Barry Lesson, and uh, I'm going to get into his bio in a minute, but first I want to read some news, and I'm going to bring Barry right on. Uh, This is out of the New York Times on June 18th this year. There is uh, a a halfway house in um, New Jersey right outside of Trenton. The Bo Robinson Center in New Jersey is is as large as a prison and is intended to help inmates reenter society. But the New York Times found that drugs, gangs, and sexual abuse are rife behind its walls. Um, most of the attacks happened inside the supply closets, away from workers or security cameras, a dark space that Vanessa Falcone tried desperately to avoid. Ms. Falcone was an inmate at the Albert M. Bo Robinson Assessment and Treatment Center, a 900-bed halfway house here that is the vanguard of a national movement to privatize correctional facilities. She was assigned to the cleaning crew under the supervision of a janitor. One night in 2009, he ordered her into the closet. He took his pants off and grabbed my hair and pushed me down, Ms. Falcone, now 32, said in an interview. That started a few weeks of basically hell. Finally, she told a senior guard that she was being sexually assaulted, according to internal reports written by the guard. She was immediately transferred to another halfway house. The janitor was dismissed, and that is where it ended. State officials and prosecutors did not conduct an inquiry into the allegations or the halfway house, which is run by Community Education Centers, a company which, with close ties to New Jersey politicians, including Chris Christie, who became governor in 2012. Um, they shipped me off to another place like it never happened, said Ms. Falcone, who had gone to prison for foregoing prescriptions. Somehow this doesn't shock me about the connection of this to Chris Christie, but uh this is really good to see i'm sorry for uh, to this woman and many of the people who were uh harassed here and sexually assaulted but the fact that the new york times is finally writing a story about it is absolutely fabulous so um barry lesson is a licensed psychologist and certified addictions counselor in private practice in fort washington pennsylvania with uh, working primarily with teens, young adults, and their families. And I am going to bring him on. He's been working in the business for about uh, 30 years, and he has recently uh, also began to work in public policy dealing with the war on drugs and what we all think about that. And I think kind of we can see what's happening with these uh, these sober living places. But anyway, I'm going to bring Barry on. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the show. Hi, Monica. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. Mm -hmm. We have another wise man that's going to change how people think about addiction. (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll see. We can only try. 
Well, you know, it's another person trying. So I heard you on Kenneth's show, and I really liked what I heard there and, you know, contacted you. So how about uh, just tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, because there's people in the chat room, and they'll be chatting, but um, they're all listening, and there's people who are out there suffering who uh, the the main way that has been um, thrown on everybody is not working for all the people that come to my blogs, or most of them. And so um, let's hear a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'll tell you a little bit about um, what I've been doing and what got me to this point where I'm having the, the opportunity to talk to you, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, I'm a, I'm a licensed psychologist and an addictions counselor. I have a private practice in Fort Washington, PA, which is in suburban Philly. And I, I work, um, I, I, like you said, with, with mostly young adults and teens and their families. And in recent years, I've been really uh, been profoundly affected by my personal experience with addiction and mental illness in my own family with my nephew mm-hmm. and my awareness of the, the failed public health policies in our country that criminalize and stigmatize those of uh, us with addiction problems. Right, right. Uh, so so for, um, for decades I, I dealt with the, the frustration, the pain, and the difficulty in trying to get decent care for people that I work with Mm-hmm. who have addiction problems, working with them one client, one family at a time. Right. And I realized that it's it's more important to, or it, it's as important to, to turn my attention to the larger public health environment that's, that, we're, that those of us who are, are working with addiction treatment are required to work in. So um, as a result my, my, of these experiences, I, it led me to incorporate harm reduction principles and, and approaches into my work. And um, as you know, um, harm reduction focuses on the uniqueness of each person's needs, embraces any positive change, and and that helps us avoid the stigma and shame-inducing approaches that traditional one-size-fits-all treatment programs who uh, require people seeking treatment with them to fit into. Yeah, it sounds so sane. You know what I mean? I I don't know um, like your whole background. So can I? I want to just ask you: Did you start being uh, this type of uh, therapist right out of college? Uh, out of college, I began working doing some research um, in, a, uh, in a program that was actually a pioneer. It was pioneering back then in the '70s, combining substance abuse. It was very unusual for drug addicts and alcoholics to work together. Uh, mm-hmm. to, I mean, to be in treatment together, mm-hmm. um, and um, I, um, when I realized that, when I realized it's what I wanted to do, and I needed to get um, license and the clinical experience. Um, I, um, I, I've always been kind of like a, an outlier. I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist and work with this population, but I didn't fit into the traditional. Um, roles of psychologists with the medical disease model focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got, I found the program uh, at Temple University. I got the clinical training and, and the interns that I felt that I needed. Right. Um, and um, I, I became aware of the, uh, kind of a distaste for the for the medical model, uh, the, uh, the need for diagnosis. I, I, I realized that diagnosis is helpful for us to be able to. Um, Communicate with other professionals and understand the, um, you know, the, the, the dynamics and the, the etiology, the causes of the, of the of the problem. But I, I always felt uncomfortable because labeling sets up, you know, it's kind of self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. and, and 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 failure sometimes, and and became stigmatizing. And, and as the years went on, and became more aware of, um, you know, the labels assigned to to um, to uh, people with substance. Abuse problems and right. uh, the whole the whole dual diagnosis or co-occurring du- disorder um, issue. It's kind of it, there wasn't the treatment the the treatment that was available um, was not really meeting the needs of people who had addiction problems and um, and mental health issues. So mm. um, I kind of uh, yeah. Um, I was just ready as you were talking. I was thinking, um, being that you were in the field. Uh, and my experience was that I didn't learn about all these other 
options, and I really felt kind of stupid, but you were in the field. So when did you first learn about um, harm reduction and smart recovery and RR and life ring and uh, SOS and these other things that I feel like I just found out about that have been around kind of a long time? <laughs> well, I'm a newbie myself because I, I was uh, last June, it was probably like within the week of a, of a year ago, yeah. uh, this time I was minding my own business and um, and – uh, I just I was very proud of myself because I had a new website and a blog and I was and I I love to write and part of what I do is to um, you know, educate my clients and I wanted to be able to um, do more of that so um, I began um, I, looking around for topics to read about I, I came upon some, uh, some some publicity about the 40th anniversary of the war on drugs right and it made me it kind of lifted my head out of the sand to to I wanted to learn more about it, and using the power of the Internet and social media, I was able to reach out to some people who are advocates in the field mm-hmm. um, and uh, began to educate me and uh, began to educate me in the issues and inspired me really with their passion and their personal experiences that they were involved in to get in, involved in this in a larger way. Yeah, now I, I know that you had, um, is it your brother or your sister's child? That became so personal for you, your nephew. It's my, it's my nephew. My, your, my your, okay, your nephew. So, do you want to tell us about the horrendous treatment experience that he had that made you realize that things might be should should be different? Uh, yeah, in about um, I guess about 2006, um, we became aware of uh, my nephew's addiction problem. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was a junior in college. And um, he was starting to flunk out. This is a very bright kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to really fine, um, you know, like a preparatory high school, and um, he was flunking out. And uh, my brother at the time became aware of an addiction problem, and he came to me, being the resident counselor in the family, mm-hmm. came to me for advice. So mm-hmm. um, I went into my trusty counselor's toolbox, mm-hmm. and I gave my brother and sister-in-law a crash course in uh, what I knew best, my old school, tough love, don't enable approach, mm-hmm. and get him into rehab and get yourself to Naranon and um, let's take these first steps. And, and amazingly, yeah. my brother listened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, amazing because not everybody you know, in families will listen to each other. Right, and, right. And, and like most people, most, most of the most clients that I work with, most people, when they're, when they're you know, this is a devastating uh you know, a devastating reality. Right. Uh, making a change to and take some action sometimes takes months and months or years and never even happens. Right. So they, they, I really give them a lot of credit because mm-hmm. uh, they, um, they, they did what they needed to do in terms of getting him into treatment, and um, and he, and he, he began, he started treatment and. Um, and I was coaching them along the way, and but problems started happening where he initially he was compliant, but he uh, he willingly he willingly went by the pattern of uh, you know he started getting kicked out of programs. He got back in a program. He was living out in the street for a while. He went to Florida for a long for a longer term rehab supposedly. Mm. Um, he got kicked out of that program. He ended up in a psych hospital. He was discharged from the AMA psych hospital from the psych hospital. And then we kind of lost contact with him mm. for six or seven months. And right. and um, you know the, my, my my brother and sister in law were going down and on and on. They were developing a program for themselves, getting support. And he was out there, and there was very little contact. Oh, that's him. sad. That's really hard. That's really really sad. Um, and then um, in two, then the summer of 2007, I guess it was uh, it's almost a year later, we got a call that he had had from he was in Florida. He had a, he had a very serious suicide attempt. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't overdose related at all. Yeah. Uh, because when, when we when we got to Florida, he was in a trauma unit because he had done some very serious uh, physical damage to himself. Wow. Um, and, and self-mutilating kinds of things, and, oh, and we had discovered that he 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 had been actively involved in the recovery community. He was sober for almost six, he was probably seven or eight months. Wow! Uh, people that he people had he had worked people he had worked with um, friends. Um, he was living in a sober house. Um, where came to the hospital, got in touch with us, and said that this this kid was um, was doing great. Um, oh my God! 
So he was going um, so to AA or NA or both? He was heavily, he was involved in AA. He was involved mm-hmm. in NA, mm-hmm. and he was um, he was an active member of this recovery community. And you know, in Florida, it's kind of a cottage industry of of rehabs and the recovery what city, community. What city, ask? What city was he near or in? Uh, it was in Boca, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Delray, okay. Delray. Because I have a lot of people that have called me from that area, you know, with problems. First on my Stop 13 Step, and then um, I created my Leaving AA site. But a lot of stuff going on down there. Uh, Okay, so um, he was going, but he attempted suicide. And then what happens next? So uh, I I went down with my brother and sister-in-law, and um, after five minutes of talking to him in the hospital, it was very clear that he was very severely bipolar. He uh, they were they the, he had an initial psychiatric evaluation when he came in there, but he wasn't on any medicine. The only the only psychiatric precaution was they had an, an aide sitting in his room as a suicide watch. Mm. Um, so when wow. I realized that this was in the evening, I realized that he basically said, "I don't feel safe. I feel." Uh, it was very clear that he said he was um, he, you know he needed some psychiatric he needed some urgent intervention. Mm. Uh, we we had to literally fight with the staff to. Have him get a psychiatric eval. Really? Have him some type of medication. Yeah. Wow. So he's yeah, in a rehab. Brother. He he was in a rehab. It was it a no, really? No, he was in the he was in he was in the trauma unit of the hospital. Oh, he's in trauma. Because he was still recovering. He was not medically stable at the time. Okay. Okay. So um, he had you know, injuries from the suicide attempt. So he was medically stable. He was probably two days away um, from from being discharged. But mm-hmm. he was not. There was no medication. There was no there was no uh, no acknowledgement that that uh, there was no treatment for him for the mental illness part. So um, I realized in a in a trauma unit in the medical part, they're, you know, they're going to be limited. But there needs there should have been a psychiatric follow up. There needed to be, uh, you know, it was it was it was very minimal. Right, right. Oh my God. So um, was that two years later? Was was that bringing you up to two thousand and eight? So, um, well, he was. It was 2007 is when he, he mm. was in there. Yeah. Um, and we um, uh, we had to, you know, like I said, my brother's a physician, so he had to. He, he they, they listened to him, and they got him into a into the uh, when he was medically stable. They moved him into a rehab, and they recommended in the rehab after the first day that he go to a long term rehab. Mm-hmm. So it did, he, this guy was this kid was sober for seven months. There was no need for a rehab. So that right. was when we realized we need to get him out of there. In fact, the social worker said to us, "You need to take your, you know, you need to take your son, your nephew home." Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. um, we, wow. we, we were able to bring him back home, and mm-hmm. um, he actually um, relocated in Baltimore, we, where he got really excellent care there, a uh, really integrated program with with um, with. Uh, with recovery treatment and mental health treatment, and he's been there for five years. He's doing really, really well. He's he's working full part time. He's going to school. He's probably going to graduate either this year or the beginning of next year. So, um, you know, we're fortunate because he, um, you know, he's able to. He he, he found what he needed. You know, it, it, the point is not to disparage the treatment or mm-hmm. to. to um, you know, to, to put that down, he was he was a very difficult patient, obviously, because of his multiple issues. He was very non-compliant, mm-hmm. um, but but they offered enough that he needed. He offered they offered him what he needed to figure out what he what he needed to do to get sober and stay sober. And to his credit, he did. Right. Um, and he got into early sobriety pretty much on his own. We, there was no help from the family because we were uh, he was on his own, mm-hmm. according mm-hmm. to the, uh, according to. Um, the my uh, the old school approach. Right, right. So, well, one of the problems, though, that we all know with this is that we have a young blogger who just committed suicide, Ryan, who was sent to a treatment center on the East Coast where there was nobody with any letters at the end of their name. So they were all just sober in AA. They're all just steppers, you know. And you and I are just getting to know each other, but I was in AA for a long time. And... uh I didn't really know this world, but had my own personal story with my own son who started to drink too much. And I don't really want to get into that story now because there's so many other things that you're working on I want to talk about. But what it did for me is open my eyes 
and see things very differently. I, I didn't even want my kid to go to a meeting. That's the kind of young person's meeting is going on in West Los Angeles, at least the one I went to that night with him. And I was an AA member, you know, and so uh, I have a really bright son as well. And I think the thing that was so sad about Ryan is that the place he went to was free and it was filled with AA people with a lot of time and, and he needed mental and emotional help and medication. Um, was told by AA members like his sister to not take the medication that he needed for depression. And, uh, you know, it's a very, very sad story. And so with this, this, I was just talking to a reporter and a writer back east, and, you know, I think that too many of the rehabs are filled. You can go to Betty Ford, and somebody, because they have 15 years sober, thinks that they know what they're talking about, and they don't. And the arrogance level, frankly, you know, is really is damaging. They do not know what somebody like my son or your nephew or Ryan needs. And I, so I think that the policy and government money going into these places that really don't have a lot of accountability, and we see it even with the story going on. This is a halfway house, and I, I do believe another man is making a documentary dealing with the stuff going on with rehabs and halfway houses. But... Um, I know that you got involved with um, GRASP, the program GRASP. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Um, GRASP is a program that that has been around um, for uh, probably about 15 years or so. It was run by um, uh, parents of uh, – GRASP is for uh, parents of or, or loved ones of um, people who have died from overdose. Wow. And it was run for for many years by a couple, um, and then as they got older, they they moved, they 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 wanted to, they they passed on this this um, this work to Denise and Gary Cullen, mm-hmm. uh, who live in um, who live in uh, I'm not real familiar with California, but in the uh, in the Palm Desert area in California, uh, and they have developed. They, they, I think it's in 2007. Their son Jeff died. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 27 years old, and and they um, were they 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 were in the dilemma that many parents are in, where uh, who've lost their child to overdose. There's nowhere where you can go and really uh, have an understanding and support for their type of loss. You can go to places like compassionate friends or or children, uh, parents of suicide or right. or other or medical loss. But when you have an addiction, there's the stigma attached. There's the um, there's the the blame attached. So mm-hmm. um, Denise and Gary took the the, the baton from um, the other family and grew this group from uh, I think there were like 12 or 13 support groups to there's now 45 or so support groups around the country mm-hmm. um, that are uniquely geared towards helping. Um, families who have had suffered this kind of loss and she's also they also have a kind of a an umbrella group called broken no more mm-hmm. which is for um focuses on the support for people who are st- family members of people who are struggling with addiction and and also has a, a part of it that is a support that's a public health advocacy group so educating people about um the 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 failed public health policies and things um, that need to change. So, that, can you tell us about? I'm not, I'm, I'm familiar with graphs because I saw them on the news. Uh, there was a really good piece about uh, I think maybe Denise or the founders of what that was. But what, when you go to a meeting and you're a family member, what is the philosophy? You know, what do they tell a parent? Do you know? Well, you, the, the loss that you experience. From the, the the death, the grief that you experience, there's um, you know there's not much you can say. You, you, a lot of it is having a community that you can connect with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, it's 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 a trauma. It's devastating. There's um, there's uh, you know it, it's there's nowhere where you can talk about this and and right, the right. healing process. Uh, you know the healing process. Uh, if you go to a standard grief group, there's um, there's a sense of um, you know people will say to them, and not necessarily a grief group, but generally it's you know time will heal, you'll get over this, and and that, that's not 
that's not the case. It's it's uh, uh, you know it's it's a life. You know, your your hearts are broken, and and the the, 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 the it's a wound that needs to heal, and uh, it's finding ways to um, to make connections where you can begin to heal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Maybe I should look into that and see how she grew that group because I certainly um, was talking to Tom Horvath. And we feel there needs to be an, a trauma group for people coming out of AA. I don't know if you're aware of all that's going on in it, but it's pretty serious. And he said to me, what happens is they come to SMART and they just want to vent and dump, which we need to do. I've certainly done it. And I think that, that you know, for someone to have any kind of trauma and be told that... Anyway, I, I, I might it might be good for me to look into to see somebody who's grown something um, that's then now helping look at how many people are going to have a place where they can have that community, and actually that's what other people are looking for who have been damaged either by the program or the people in it. Um, right. Wow. Okay. So um, and so you do fifty percent of your practice. You still you're seeing families and teens, right? That's you're, you're still doing that. Um, yeah, I can, still I still um, I kind of uh, I found. I found the, the work, doing the, the advocacy work is, um, you know, it gives me an opportunity to, to work in, in a larger, in the, uh, you know, working from the top down as opposed to the bottom up. So um, I, I spend about half the time with seeing kids and, and young adults and their families and the other half of the time in doing things like um, talking with you and doing some writing and um, I was fortunate to have a, I've had a, an op-ed that was published today in the Desert Sun, which is out in Palm Desert, um, because the, um, the, the Gil, Kurla, Gil Kurlikowski, the drugs are for the Office of National, the Office of National Drug uh, Control Policy, spoke out at the Betty Ford Center last week, and um, and it's the way that the, the government will present the drug policies, they'll present the positive things, that there, there is actually some change that, that they're looking towards, but the reality is is that um, there's the, the, they're leaving, he's leaving out the, 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 um, the parts that are, that are the, the truth. So, um, so it's things like that, writing, and, and um, I'm going to one of the grass groups up here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, tomorrow night to, to talk to the group members and, and just uh, to Give, uh, help educate them about um, you know, some of the public policy issues, so they can transform some of their. As we asked before about you know, how to manage the grief. It's being able to uh, channel some of the energy into something that's positive. You, you can. You want to be able to keep the, the the memory and the love that you have of your child alive. Uh, it's very important to be able to do uh, as part of the healing process. So um, being able to. Um, talk about them publicly, being able to write about them, being able to um, contact legislators and uh, um, or uh, school districts to try to help them understand what the, uh, you know, some of the problems associated with drug policies that are, that are allowing mm. people to die. Can you tell us what some of the drug policies are government-wise, what you learned last week, and what things might be changing for the better? Uh, well, the, the war on drugs really reflects, uh, since the 70s, uh, a, uh, a a policy of the of the government that focuses mostly on trying to restrict the flow of drugs into our country by using uh, law enforcement efforts. Kind of in other countries, it's paramilitary efforts where they're trying to prevent crops of uh, coke, uh, you know, cocaine and, and and opium from growing. And in our country, it's uh, it's it's primarily around incarcerating people or criminalizing addiction um, uh, where it's criminalizing addiction so we're at the point where uh, we spent since the 70s a trillion dollars has been spent on these policies of trying to uh, cut the drug consumption down with, mm-hmm. with barely a dent in the use mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, yeah it amount- doesn't work huh mm. No, so yeah, so uh, uh, it's not changing the use. It's 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 it's, uh, it's, it's, it's people are being locked up at, at astronomical rates. Our, our, the United States has five percent of the world's population and twenty five percent of the world's prison population. Wow. 
That's bad. That's bad. And they're privatizing prisons, and they're privatizing... Oh, my God, we don't even want to go down that road. We could really talk for an hour there. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. You mentioned that in the article. Uh, you know, the, the it's become a it's become a, it's like a prison industrial complex. It's it's a whole other aspect of the problem that mm-hmm. that people are making money off of it, and uh, it's uh, you know it's just allowing people to people aren't getting the treatment that they need. So, but do you have um, medical marijuana legal in Pennsylvania? Uh, no, medical Pennsylvania is a very uh, conservative state. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're right next to Penn, we're right next to New Jersey with with Governor Christie, mm-hmm. who um, trying to sort out what he kind of falls on several sides of the. Is he an AA? Fence. He looks like a guy to me. Um, <laughs> looks like a stepper. When I saw he was acting, I go, that guy. What, what's the deal with him? Well, he's a very good politician. So he. he um, he, he's a he's, he's overall conservative politician, but he if what but he's done, um, he has been friendly to um, to uh, in some ways it's like uh, the drugs are where uh, Charlie Kowski where they talks out of both sides of his mouth. So mm-hmm. um, there's medical marijuana is legal in New Jersey, but it's making it very difficult in order to set up the the, the co-ops or the distribution centers. Hmm. Um, How long has it been uh, legal there? I think it was passed a couple years ago. I don't know the the uh, I don't know the exact dates. The, uh, they should just the come out to California. They can they can figure it out because they've figured it out out here. I mean, I live in a state where marijuana is legal. You know, and, it, and it, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of these drugs, if they just made them legal. Uh, it's like prohibition, you know. I mean, it's just absurd. I think, especially with medical marijuana, they the, the doctors give out all the Xanax to people, and Xanax is like as addicting as heroin. Marijuana isn't even physically addicting. I mean, I don't smoke it myself, but I've seen it help, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, including people who have arthritis, and they don't, they can't even afford. I, I interviewed one woman who was telling me that she smoked it because she couldn't afford the arthritis medication. And then the steppers told her that she wasn't sober because she used medical marijuana as um, as her, you know, pain medication. And uh, we could have a whole other hour talking about that. But, yeah, so I, I was curious when we were talking about this with the drug policy. So uh, you just said to me that we've spent over a trillion dollars, right, since the 70s. And um, so if this whole front or, you know, pretending that the government wants to stop the flow, because trust me, if they really wanted to stop the flow, the flow would stop. Uh, when I saw the Denzel Washington film, you know, that dealt with the whole heroin thing, I, I was a teenager in New York in the 70s, and I remember feeling how corrupt the city was, and I had a grandfather who was a cop, and I remember hearing my grandmother talk about, you know, heroin, and he worked in some black precincts. and um, But, you know, I... It was corrupt. It, my feeling and my gut instinct about the whole drug thing and heroin was not popular in my neighborhood. You know, you drank beer. It was an Irish Catholic neighborhood, so we smoked pot and drank beer and you know tried other things. But that's really most of what it was. And if you did heroin, you were like you were a Vietnam vet and you were a loser. And no one ever did it around anybody because it was considered to be so taboo. You know where I came from, right. but. You know, I heard there's a real problem in Nutley, New Jersey, from a whole incident we had here with the AA and the NA members that were sexually harassing, you know, people in some lovely little town in Nutley, and um, heard that there's a serious heroin problem there. And so I don't understand. I do understand it. I know, and you know, and people just, they don't want to talk about it, and now everybody's making billions of dollars outsourcing their kids to a rehab. I mean, I'm so grateful and so glad that you and your your brother and his wife and that nurse there said what they did to you about your nephew and you took him home. Because why do people think they need to send their kid anywhere? I mean, nobody went anywhere when I got clean and sober. Nobody. You know what I mean? People just did it or they went to meetings. But you didn't go to a rehab. There weren't any. Well, I, I think a lot of the decisions about treatment are are decided by insurance companies mm-hmm. uh, because um, for people that are working, for, we, you have a, a very odd system in our country that 
our insur our health insurance is based on our employment, and our employers will pay for it. And then there's this, the whole tier of people that are unable to get insurance at all. Right. And the insurance that is offered is really, again, it's that's within the, the, the law enforcement system. So um, there's, um, you know, it's you... You know, it's it's usually through the criminal justice system, and and uh, which is has no treatment, or they'll have drug courts, which really are not. Uh, you know, drug courts are, are tied into, uh, you know, if you fail, if you don't, if you can't stay sober, then you have more probation, or you get locked up again. So it's like a punishment. So um, it, it's you know, the, um, the the decisions about what treatments are available uh, are you know based on. Uh, the the, uh, the financial interests of, of various various um, parts of our country. Mm, um, mm. There's a there's an aspect of the public health policy, uh, and specifically with with uh, heroin addiction. That's uh, one of the areas that um, that the GRASP works at, and a lot of the public health policies focus on things like uh, uh, needle exchange programs, where mm -hmm. if you're going to use if you're going to use heroin. Mm -hmm. Then let's figure out a way for that people aren't going to die from the diseases, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, or have the get very expensive diseases, and and allow them to be distributed. Uh, the government last year repealed or, or banned them. Uh, so you know, mm. it's, you know, people who are using drugs because of the stigma attached to, to heroin right. use. Uh, right. There's, naloxone is a drug that is used to as an antidote for overdose. It will overturn overdose. That is used for emergency medical uh, uh, people use it in emergencies. But in some uh, communities, it, it's now becoming available where, um, where families can have it. So if you have a child who is using drugs and if there's an overdose, they can get an injection and it will save their life. Uh, so you know the, the the stigma is well he's a junkie like he, he, let's, let's let him die so so these these are uh, these are mm -hmm. public policies that are beginning to have dents uh, they're beginning to dents made in this you know in in, in this, this moving forward with these problems um, there's another law that is in several handful of states called the Good Samaritan 911 law that will uh, will allow someone who is witnessing a drug overdose, if you're getting high with somebody uh, and they're overdosing, you can call the police. The police will come without arresting you and just provide medical care. Mm. Uh, so that will, again, it's a way of saving lives. It's decriminalizing, destigmatizing uh, the, uh, the use of the drug. So those kinds of things are things that GRASP is involved in. And a lot of the, um, the, the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a national organization that that is um, that uh, you know monitors and 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 is a is a linchpin in a lot of these organizations a lot of these these um, uh, the, the movement towards trying to make these changes so these are these are some of the the uh, the policies that are are you know, we're trying to move forward on right right where was this drug policy alliance and about how many people were there it says that you went there the in the fall. Drug Policy Alliance was in L.A. It, mm -hmm. it meets every two years. It, it, it alternates with the Harm Reduction Coalition meeting because a lot of their, um, you know, a, a lot of their, they have the same, they have a similar mission. Their mission overlaps very much. Mm -hmm. So they meet every two years. And uh, my, it was my first meeting. I went in in, in the fall. It was in, in Los Angeles. Right. And about how many people were there? There were, I think, about a thousand people, maybe twelve hundred people. Oh, that's a lot. So, what types of, like, you were there? You're, you know, uh, a therapist in the field, and Tom Horvath, who has, and anybody's listening who doesn't know, he has Practical Recovery, is um, for profit. So there is a definitely uh, an addiction rehab down in San Diego. It's really beautiful. I went down there and, and uh, interviewed and saw it uh, for somebody who doesn't um, like twelve step, and they um, are absolutely not that and um, so there's a there is a treatment program and they have fabulous food too. <laughs> they fed me, but um, yeah. So uh, that's very that's very it's important. important. Well, it is. I mean, a lot of people go to the program. They eat like junk, coffee, and smoke cigarettes, and eat donuts, and wonder why you're like bipolar. You know. <laughs> <I agree. laughs> um, so who else was there though? What other kinds of people and physician wise, you know, uh, 
Well, for me, it was an eye-opener because yeah. I basically exactly. was in my comfy suburban view of the world, and uh, there were people, it's an international It's an international meeting, there were people from all, uh, the people that, that hated drugs and, and people that loved drugs and everyone in between. There uh, was um, people who were working with homeless and, and HIV and needle exchange, and um, the the common thread was that there's, there's compassion and developing policies that are that are based on compassion, health, human rights, and science, and and mm. it just brings a whole wide range of people, um, different colors, different uh, socioeconomic status. Right, uh, right. It sounds like I should go it, to that. Yeah, I mean that sounds like a great it, thing. It, it really it was, it was very inspirational because it, it began to um, you know it opened my eyes up. So it was the first time I was able to meet uh, the people from Grasp and uh, people. There's a group in in, in Los Angeles. Um, called uh, a new path, which uh, and it's related to Moms United to end the war on drugs. Gretchen Burns Bergman is the head of that. And mm-hmm. uh, she, what's that called? New path? Uh, Did you say new path? It's called a new path. A new path. Uh huh. And path stands for I, wish, I really should know the it's an acronym, but uh, she is in San Diego. Mhm. And she is um, she has been at the forefront at of developing. Uh, at the forefront of, the, of, the, of you know, promoting the, the, the public health advocacy change, mm-hmm. um, and, and, I did, and being a clinician and being able to talk about harm reduction or talk about uh, there, there are a lot of people there who um, are uh, they love marijuana and they just mm-hmm. want marijuana legalized. And yeah, right. I'm in a position where I, you know, I work with kids and families, and um, you know, marijuana legalization at the political level it makes a lot of sense, but there's a sense of um, uh, you know, it's uh, people will people will think, well, if you're for these causes, you you're condoning my kid to smoke or everyone to smoke, and so I'm kind of trying to sort out where I fit in to the whole scheme of things from a, from a clinical perspective. Um, yeah, but, but wait, it, wait but, a second. I want to say, remember what we talked about? Now, I, I don't know how old you are, but I, I I was in the 70s and you were, and maybe you could say to them, well, weren't you smoking pot in the park? Like these, what are these parents? Like, were they like Mormons? Like, you're talking about people who grew up in Philly in the 70s, and these parents are, what, they don't drink alcohol now? What if they, or are they just sober parents, and so they're terrified well, that they, their kids... They, they, they are fed to lie. I mean, there's a lot of myths. I know, but give me an example. Like, let's, you know, be, like, we're, it's sort of like, I know you're in the suburbs, right? But there's, if everybody is smoking pot in the United States now, I mean, it's it, you, you can't even get addicted to it. So it's like nobody overdoses on it. Nobody does anything violent. We had a cop. There, in fact, I think there was a police officer who was quoted saying that he would much rather have to deal with somebody who was high on pot than alcohol because the alcohol makes him so much more violent. So you have a kid in there who's, uh, I mean, I have a 17-year-old and a 22-year-old. You have a parent who's what? They're 50. Right. What were they doing? You know, I mean, what were they doing when they were 16 or so? My my son turned to me and he said, "I was worried about him, like sleeping over his friends." And he said, "Well, what were you doing at 17?" He said, "You hitchhiked across the country by yourself." <laughs> right. So, so some of the parents have to be reminded of this. Uh, a lot of the you know, a lot of this is a lot of this is triggered by fear, mm-hmm. and uh, as and we forget that we were teens once, and, and this is right. our first go around as being a parent, and it, and fear makes us lose sight of reality sometimes, and right. and um, and go back to ways of you know when when it's like the fight or flight reaction, it's like it's, it's survival, so you kind of lock things down, and. Uh, so, so part of it's not it's not even a harm reduction approach. It's a basic approach to educate parents and give parents real inform- accurate information based on science, not based on um, you know marijuana is is not a gateway drug. And marijuana uh, now now there, marijuana can be addicting. And the kids that I'm seeing, these are kids that that are um, are, are farther along the process of abusing abusing drugs. And mm-hmm. uh, there when when there's a kid who is who is fail, flunking out of school and is getting arrested and is... Oh, yeah, they're in trouble. They're getting into trouble. Yeah. So, right. um, and and the, you can become, you can you can become addicted to, to marijuana if you use it 
over a period of time. And, right, you can get, it's it, psychologically addicting. I mean, yes, I know. I, th- I think I right, was, was it, a teen that's right. psychologically addicted to it. But when I wanted to quit, I just quit. That was the end of it. So um, a young person, a teenager, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're dealing with the, you know, the, 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 you know, the sense of immortality of a teenager. And, and what we know about teenagers, you know, what I'll do is educate you know, people, have them take a look at their own, their own they were a teenager. Let's go back to look at that. But we also forget that normal teen development involves risky behavior. It's a way of right. learning about the world, uh, new novelty. The new things are very intriguing to the point of uh, we're not, we don't care about the consequences. And the social interaction, um, they, they, the social community becomes more important than their family community mm-hmm. for that period of time. So they are being put at, at huge risk for trying all kinds of Risky thing. So, um, so being able to talk about helping your, uh, helping the parents to talk about it, rather you know, getting past the freaking out and zero, and, and zero tolerance doesn't work. Like, what do you do after you, you know, you can't? Um, I, I'm seeing a kid now where he got arrested. Um, he found selling pot, and the, and the parents. This is a 17 year old kid who uh, he, they took away his. He was gra- he grounded. For 30 days, and he's no, he's no cell phone, no computer. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's not. Um, that's hell for a 17-year-old. <laughs> oh, it's, it's worse. It's worse than hell. So, uh, so educating them about, and actually, uh, this is a, uh, a. The father was um, uh, 10 years in recovery, and he scares the, the crap out of him. Right. So he's an AA or NA, right? He's been in NA and he right. has a, is, is a stable recovery, but it's you. I, I and there's lots of addiction in the family history, tons of it, and it's you're not going to. I know what happened to me. Right. So his all fear-based projection of himself yeah. onto his kid. I did it. I know. I was a terrible. You know, I said all the wrong. I, I I hear you. So, right. So that's what he's doing to his kid. But somebody needs to wake him up and say. What you're doing, projecting onto your kid, when I realized that, and I read Stanton Peel's book, Addiction Proof Your Child. Have you read that book? Right, right. Have you read that one? Right. Yes. I mean, I, I couldn't, when I read that book, I thought, why wasn't I reading, why didn't I read this? You know, I mean, I was still, you know, in AA, so I don't know how it would have gone over for me, but I was told lies by therapists. I mean, parents need to know that it's not a disease, that just because I, was a, I drank too much as a teenager, and maybe their father did, that they're going to become it? Like, you know, it, that's not true. And that is, a, that is one of the biggest reasons that I'm making my film, is so that, you know, here you have a guy that, you know, here he, if someone would say, you know, if you just relax, I mean, I wouldn't want, I see these people that I know, their kids are in the program, oh, my kid's sober now, he's got two years, like, I went, wow, I don't want that for my kid. Why would I want my right. kid to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous? I don't know what your or meetings are like in your area. They may be nice, but they are gnarly here. And um, it's nothing like the 70s. And for someone to bring a 17-year-old or a 21-year-old into a place that now they're sentencing third-level sex offenders to meetings and violent criminals, to, they are sentencing them, Barry, to meetings right. unknown to... You or do you know that? Oh yeah, it's usually a, it's a part of um, a, it's a part of treatment through, uh, through yeah. I mean, it, it's a part of uh, not treatment. It's a part of uh, uh, it, it's a part of uh, like probation, probation or some some. Yeah, you know, plea, they're plea deals that they right, make with them. It, you right. know, I mean, it's one right. thing. To, even uh, yeah, it's a whole other discussion. Okay, so. Here you have a so, parent. So how do you now with your new head that you have, you know, this different way of looking at it? What do you do differently than you did before? Well, I what, what's nice is that initially when I when I began to look at other ways of of dealing with this, I was like freaked out because like, well, what do I do now? But yeah. I basically, I'm doing the same things: educating parents, helping right. parents understand there's certain things that they're doing that are great, and and. Uh, now, there's certain things that they're doing. We look for the good things, and there's usually some some good things that are going on in the family. And, and um, it, most of the kids that I see, the connection is still there. It's not. Sometimes it's so damaged that that um, you know there's a 
lot of work. There's a lot of repair work that has to be done. But but a lot of times it's um, it's going back to things that 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 healthy families need to do, need to need to need to have. So Stan talks about you know developing, the, going back to what, what, what the principles of what's important in families, the principles to be able to have the communication, to be able to have mutual respect, to be able to have um, shifting the responsibility on a child to be able to to take care of himself in a developmentally appropriate way. So my job is to diffuse some of the is diffuse some of this um, the fear, and um, have the parents begin to look for ways to be back in the driver's seat, and um, and things that they have or that they were doing when the kid was maybe 12, 13, 14 before he started getting high, and getting back to that, and and um, once. Once the fear is diffused, the, the, the kids will generally begin to talk right. about. You know, it's not about the drug. It's not about the drug. Right. Right. And and the kids, when they, it's a it's a relief for them. Mm-hmm. Or if it is, you know, it's even talk. You don't have to talk. There's a way to, to communicate to talk to the kid and communicate where he'll be more open to um, to uh, you know, to talk about things. The same kids who um, I'm seeing who. Um, uh, with the father in recovery, um, who is in lockdown for 30 days, um, I, I talked to him and about uh, with harm reduction. It's you know it's looking at the the pros and cons uh, the pros and cons of the substance that you're using, and the drug is not you know it's not an evil thing. So in right. conversation, he he uh, he got caught because he was smoking. Uh, he got caught because he was um, selling with a lot of pot that he admitted selling, but he's also Admitted that he was using uh, tranquilizers and um, pain medicine, Percocets, and um, he and in the conversation with me over uh, you know a half an hour, he began to when, when there wasn't a punishment involved, he right. talked about how uh, you know when I um, I was using the pills and the pills made me uh, help me deal with the depression that I feel sometimes I feel a sense of emptiness and. Um, Pot, I don't need pot for that, but I really needed the pills to feel better and numb myself out. And and this is stuff that it was it was a pleasure to see that this kid in the, with with you know in the right environment will talk about this stuff. Mm, so mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, so it all it took for me is a little bit of allowing him to talk. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an experienced person to be able to listen. But these parents can do this. This is this was a stable family. These, these, this is, uh, they did have a lot of the skills that were there. So it's being able to, to diffuse some of that tension and be able to help educate the parents to begin to talk about what I did with him to be able to talk. They can do that if they can get off of their, um, you know, that the, you know, the, the fear that that's making them, making that that's making them freaked out. Right, right. I'm talking to Barry Lesson on. Um, safe Recovery on Blog Talk Radio, and Barry Lipson is a psychologist, a licensed psychologist and certified addictions counselor in private practice in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania. He works 50% on his um, private practice and the other 50% on uh, the drug policy and making more changes to that. Uh, so you went to the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, let's see. uh is there something else that um, so the transition that you went through as a uh, a licensed psychologist and how you were going to work with your clients uh, and then get involved with the drug policy? What would you say the biggest shift was for you? Uh, well, one of the things I, I became aware of and, and came going to the drug policy lines and meeting meeting. Um, um, Homeless people and 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 drug users and meeting the parents from grasp. Uh, I've had I've had clients I've had a handful of clients die and I've dealt with this uh, with, with my clients. But meeting uh, the, the groups of parents, uh, I became aware of how the, the judgments that I still had about about drug use, heroin use. Um, so. Um, you know, as I met more and more of the advocates and more and more of the, these families, um, my own judgmental attitudes about addicts and the families began to surface, which was like a shock to me because uh, mm-hmm. I was like a, 
I'm like a like an ex hippie. I grew up in Woodstock and Peace and Love, and I was trained in Carl Rogers' humanistic psychology, mm-hmm. who where the focus is unconditional positive regard. So I, I found myself um, like looking at anyone who's you know every, everyone who's using drugs is, is an addict. Uh, there's like one everywhere. Like everyone who's coming to my office, oh, you must be an addict. Now, I, <laughs> I tend to see people, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. Um, it's it's a headset. It's a mindset. It's ingrained in me culturally. The the myths of 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 the of abstinence based treatment, but also the myths of our culture, the moral based it's morally it's moral judgments that I'm finding myself here I'm meeting these people and and it was weird, it was different because I'm meeting them in a setting that's outside of my office in a non clinical setting and getting to know them personally and also the experience with my nephew. So mm-hmm. um you know the, the this if you don't go to a twelve step program you're in denial and, and, and suboxone up until um, I was in a I was in an outpatient program when we started t- doing methadone maintenance. I was dead, dead, dead set against it. It's like this is like you're not sober if you're using that. Oh so, wow! Um, yeah, I know a so, girl who's yeah she's a blogger who a NA didn't work and she's there blogging and she's that's what she's taking. Um, but I think they people need community. Not everybody does. A lot of people stop on their own. But um, there's a certain group of type of person. That likes community, and but I do think there are communities now where, with this harm reduction that we're seeing, um, how especially with, um, I mean, I don't think recreational heroin uses, you know, anything that's, you know, I'm going to support anybody doing, but I do see with alcohol and with marijuana that um, people are able to moderate, but if they're told it's so black and white, and especially, you know, I mean, God. I, Certainly, as I left Barry and I read some of the stuff from the big book, and I thought science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. I said, Jesus Christ, that stuff was written in 1939 or published in 39. And there's lots of stuff that's different now. Now, Trexon it helps with cravings um, for you know withdrawal from alcohol. Right. It's very effective and should be given right. to people that have been drinking you know really heavily. And maybe Amy Winehouse would still be here if somebody would have told her she can't just stop if she was drinking that heavily you could die from the withdrawal of alcohol and but um i I think there's so much going on that um we have about three minutes left to the show so you were telling me the the change of your attitude so you were once very much a hippie and so now you're seeing this the change in you and um do you have some books that uh oh you know what do you have a blog you said you have a blog let's promote it What, what is the name of your blog well, my blog is, um, I have a blog called Parents, the Parents of Addict Resource Center, P- PARC, P-A-R-C. Okay. It's on my website. Right. Um, but my blog, I'm actually embarrassed to say, I my blog doesn't reflect a lot of my harm reduction principles. I actually have, I have some blogs that back last year where addiction is a brain science, and, and I was, like, very excited to see that the, you know, we're not looking at it as a medical problem, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's a double-edged sword looking at it as you know, a disease only. So um, I, my blog is in a state of flux. There's a lot of material. Uh, there's actually things about enabling. So um, I, it's like it's embarrassing to say that that's Okay, longer, clean. Get, get, it, get it all freshened up and let me know. We'll have you back on, and then we'll like. <laughs> but you can, still, you, can, you can still look at it. There's still a lot of good stuff in there. Okay. So, um it's uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and I'm, I'm in the process of using my blog now to have some some people change some um, clients, people in recovery, um, tell their stories. Parents who have lost loved ones, parents of, um, of you know, sharing their experience and trying to blend in the harm reduction principles with there. So you can look at it. You can it's, it's beginning to transform, and um, so it's a work in progress. Well, it's really it's really been a pleasure. Again, um, today we've had on Barry Lesson, who is a licensed psychologist and a certified addictions counselor in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, suburban Philly. His name is spelled L-E-S-S-I-N, Barry, if you want to look him up and if you're somebody listening in his area and you need help with um, as a parent or a teen or a young adult. It's really been a pleasure. I hope to get to know you some more. And if there's any events that... Um, Maybe I can meet more like-minded people. I would really love for you to get an email from you and maybe tell me about things that are going on. I'd be very, very interested, and maybe someday I can meet you as well. Well, I'd be glad to do that. It's, it's been nice meeting you. I, the work that you're doing is great. So uh, we just kind of keep um, plugging ahead and uh, moving forward, and, and hopefully we'll 
make some positive changes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so. I really, I have, I'm hopeful now. I don't feel like it's such a daunting uh, thing. I really think there's some change, and people need it. And parents, they want an answer. You know, they don't want their kid to die. Right. And absolutely. so, with that passion, uh, you know, I think and focus, we can make a difference. So, thanks, thanks so much, Barry. And we'll. All right. Thank you. I appreciate right. it. Take care. Good luck. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. So I will taking a break. Oh, here we go. I think I'm off air. And so we'll see you, everybody in two weeks. I'm going to upload shows uh, once every other week, and I'll do a live show twice a month as I am continuing working my film. Okay, good night.